Parashat Emor. Parashat Emor. I once saw a documentary of the story of a Holocaust survivor. It just captivated me. And it has stayed with me. Um, this fellow, whose name I apologize, I've forgotten, and I meant to see if I could find the documentary and couldn't, but I remember the story. Um, he was in a work camp. I believe it was the Anushka Road camp, but I could be wrong. And there was a particular guard named Boris, who was Ukrainian SS, and had his specialty. He could break a person apart with his baton, with one flick. He prided himself on being able to break a person's bone with one flick of the baton. And for some reason, one day, he had it in for this survivor's father. And he began to break him piece by piece. And you're watching an animal literally slowly kill your dad piece by piece. He watched him break his elbow. He watched him break his knees. He watched him break him to the point that bones were sticking out of his body and his father fainted. They woke him up with cold water and he started up again. And eventually, he, he couldn't work. His elbow were broken, his knees were broken. They took him to the infirmary. And the infirmary was basically a death sentence. And two days later, he disappeared. They took him off, they killed him, and that was it. This, uh, this, this, this fellow survived the war. And after the war, he was on a train. And he was headed to a particular place where he had heard that his brother, who had also survived, because after the war, people, you know, survivors were crisscrossing across Europe. And the Red Cross and the Joint and other organizations were collecting names and testimonies. And there were big bulletin boards of names and where they were and where they were last seen and people would go around asking, have you seen such and such and such and such? You would meet somebody from a town and so on and so forth. And he somehow managed to find out that his brother was, was in some, you know, DP camp and had been there the night before and he was on a train heading there hoping to find him before he moved on. And the train stops at the station on the way to the transit camp and he looks out the window, the doors are open, the train is idling and he sees this guard. He sees this Boris walking down the, the platform. And he has this enormous struggle. Should he get out of the train, run after him, and begin to beat him? And there are many survivors on these trains. All he has to do is yell that this is an SS guard. And they'll kill him. They'll rip him to pieces. But if he does this, the train will leave. And he's afraid that if he misses this train, he'll lose his brother. So after a few moments of intense struggle, he stays on the train. He finds his brother, and he regrets this moment for the rest of his life. That this fellow is walking around, and the hardest thing for him was that this Boris was walking down the platform, and he was grinning. And he wanted more than anything else in the world to wipe that grin off his face. And he says that he used to lay it awake at night fantasizing about how he would take his revenge on this fellow, and it ate him up, this, 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 this desire for revenge. How does it affect us? Now, why do I bring this up? Because there's a fascinating mitzvah 
in this week's parsha. It's not the first time we find this parsha, right? but it's an interesting mitzvah. Okay, parsha Emor. If somebody hits a person, right? Okay, um, he should be put to death. And if you pay, if you, you hit an animal, if I, you know, don't like your dog and I slam him over the, or your cow and I slam him over the head and I crack his skull, then I'm responsible. Okay? Nefesh tachat nefesh. If you kill someone, you should be killed. And if I damage, if I cause damage, if, if, I, if I inflict a wound on another human being, then that wound should be inflicted on me. Shever tachat shever. A break. For, if I break your arm, you should break my arm. Ayin tachat ayin. Famous line. An eye for an eye. Shein tachat shein. A tooth for a tooth. Kasher yitin mum ba'adam ken yinatein bo. Just in the way that the affliction I did to someone else, so should it be done to me. Etc. Right? So, this is a very difficult halacha. Ein tachatayin, an eye for an eye. And if you look up an eye for an eye online, you'll find a lot of different types of material. You'll find Christian websites. What is the word most associated with an eye, and an eye for an eye? You want to take a guess? Pardon? Revenge. When people think that the phrase, and I found this out by accident just preparing for this year, the phrase an eye for an eye conjures up images of revenge. It's not really how we think ourselves. We're, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I was on Miluim not that long ago, a few good years ago, but, you know, not 40 years ago. And um, we, were, uh, we were stationed in the area of the Gush and uh, Hebron, El Arub, and those areas. And it was a very difficult Miluim. We were actually attached to a unit of paratroopers, and they were much younger than me, and, you know, the Sega, whatever it was, it was a very difficult millennium. And all sorts of, like, you know, midnight ambushes and long masa'ot to surprise terrorists and all this kind of stuff. But of all the difficult things of that particular millennium, the most difficult were the Afsadim. And Afsad is initials, the army loves initials, for Hafarat Seder. But it was like a riot. <clears throat> the reason this was so difficult is because with a riot, you never knew what was going to happen. There was no controlling it. If there's a terrorist and he's in the house, you've got a system. And as long as you do everything by the book, chances are you'll be fine. But when you have a riot, and you could have 200 people, you could have 500 people. You don't know what they're bringing to the table. And I remember this one day, um, and, and you didn't have a chance to prepare. It's not like, you know, there's going to be a riot tomorrow. You know, with rare exception, like, you know... On Friday mornings, the, the Arabs go to mosques and the preachers rile them up, the imamim rile them up, and then you know they might be right. But most of the time, these things just pop up. And this particular afternoon, um, there were some kids. El Arub is a nasty piece of real estate um, on the edge of Hebron, south of Gush Etzion, and literally 20 minutes from my home and a world away. And they, the kids there, very often they throw rocks, Malatavim, it's, they're actually building a bypass road. This particular day they were throwing rocks, they actually injured a mother and a child in a car. Soldiers managed to catch two of these kids, and they took them, they arrested them, and they took them, uh, they were teenagers, and took them to wherever they took them. And very quickly a crowd gathered, right? And it started turning into a riot. So we got this emergency call, they needed kochot down there, and the next thing we know we're in these big uh, 
Ze'ev um, armored personnel carriers, whatever, and we're headed down to uh, El Arub. Now, the reason that this is such a terrifying experience is because right before, when we started Miluim, you know, they take you out of, like, you're sitting in race matters, and the next day you put on a uniform, you're off in the middle of Hebron. How do you make that transition? So they usually have a three-day sort of imun, a maneuver, where they're getting you back into the zone. You know, you shoot your rifles, you make sure you're back to good target, targeting, and you do masule prat, you, you, you practice, you know, all sorts of maneuvers, and you kind of learn all the rules of engagement that you haven't heard for a year or two, and whatever. And they want to impress upon you the seriousness of what you're going into. So there was a commander, a, a battalion commander, who came to speak to us, and they had just, they were just finishing their stint in the same place we were going to be in. We were about to do Khafifan, so they were giving us the lay of the land. And he tells us that Sadim, you have to be very careful because kids there have learned to use rugatkot, you know, which are like, uh, they're not quite of the slingshot you used to there. I don't know what they're called in English, but they have like a pouch and you wig them around, you can hear the sound. If you know what you're listening for, you can look and, and find who's about to shoot something, right? And they're unbelievably accurate. These kids get really good at this. Ethiopian kids also do this in the desert. You put a Palestinian who really knows what he's doing, and he could sit at that end of the urn, and he can hit literally the two on that clock, right? And they had these, you know when you played marbles, they have like the bigger marbles? So they use these bigger marbles. Now, if you get hit, there was a Sarchampe, a deputy company commander in the middle room right before ours, and he got hit in the knee. And it totally shattered his knee. He was done with Miluim forever, right? Knee surgeries, agony, etc. So this terrified us. And a lot of us got, like, heavy newspapers. And whenever we went to Afsad, we would stuff the newspapers down our pants to protect, you know, that area. You get hit by a marble there, like, you know, you're squeaking for the rest of your life. But it's scary, right? And we were down in this Afsad, and, you know, we get, and we're unloading from the Zev. And um, one of the guys in the unit, Milunik, right, he, he says to me, he has like a, puts a gun in his holster. And I look at this gun, and it doesn't look like a handgun. And they're not, soldiers are not supposed to carry handguns. You have an M16 rifle, whatever's more accurate. You don't go to Rafsad with a handgun. So I'm like, what are you doing? And he has a big grin on his face, and he pulls it out. And it's like, a, I've never seen a gun like that. Turns out it's a BB gun. He brought this BB gun from home. It's got a laser sighting. He says, Ani, he says, if I see anybody with a rugatka, I'm just going to shatter their knees. We're done. And this is totally illegal. Totally illegal. <laughs> it's, you know, you're not allowed to do that in the army. And never mind that, you know, how do I know for sure he's going to hit what he's aiming at? And should you be doing that? So I said to him, basically, it's a nice idea, but not on my watch. And I confiscated the gun and you know, disarmed it and put it in the, in, in, in the Zev, and I said, you'll get it back later. And he was very upset with me, but I remember thinking, like, he was justifiably angry. He was justifiably angry. These kids come out there, they take these marbles, and they shoot them at anything that moves. And they don't just do it at Israeli soldiers. They do it at civilians, etc. and it gets you pretty upset. You know, Hashem should bless you never to see such things, but if you ever saw a kid whose head was opened up by one of these marbles, you want to kill somebody. And if you could actually see a kid doing this, right, and you managed to capture him, you have a tremendous urge to teach him a lesson, which is totally illegal. Once you catch someone and their arms are bound, that's it. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a procedure. 
you know, they call in an army, they have to interrogate them. If they're underage, they, they have to call their parents. You know, if they need a lawyer, they get a lawyer. It's a whole, you can imagine. And yet, here comes the Torah and says, an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. Somebody does something to you. I don't know, imagine you're driving home, you just got a new car, and you know, one of your friends from school, he doesn't like you. He sees your new car, so he picks up a rock, and he throws it at your car, and he dents your car, and you can't believe it. You're gonna come home now and tell your dad, dad's gonna believe you, not gonna believe you. So the next day, you see that he's driving his new bike. So you pick up a rock, and you say to yourself, I'm gonna now violate an Isra Daraisa. Right, Lotzi come. What is the nature of this mitzvah? Now, the Gemara is pretty clear on this, right? The Gemara says, it's in Baba Kama and Daf, Pei Gimel Amid Beis, right? Amai ayin tachat ayin amarachmana, ema ayin mamash, the Pusik says an eye for an eye. So maybe it should be an eye for an eye. Which, by the way, makes sense. If you take somebody's eye out, They'll take your eye out. There'll be less people taking your eye out. Right? Lo salkadata. Don't even imagine that that's what it could be. Right? Titania yachol simeas eno, mesameas eno. Katas yado, makatas yado. Shibas raglo, mashabas raglo. Right? If, if, if I take out your eye, and you're allowed in the Torah to take out my eye, then the Torah is basically setting up a system where justice almost cannot prevail. Think about this. Imagine that you take out the eye of a fellow who's, who has only one eye. So you've blinded him. So now, he has to take out your eye, but he's not blinding you. It's not the same. Right? If you take out the eye of somebody who's a musician, he doesn't need his eye as much. Is he allowed to take out the eye of somebody who's a sofer, who without his eye can't work? Right? How can you ever... And what if somebody tries to take your eye, it doesn't get it right? And how do you know that you're totally blind, you're mildly blind? It's almost impossible to actually exact justice with such a fashion. So, therefore, right? Talmud Lomar, So there's a hekesh in the Pasuk. It says that if you damage an animal, you have to pay for the animal. It's the same language. Therefore, it's a right? If by an animal you pay, by an injury you pay. Now what's interesting about this is nobody argues about this. Not in the Gemara here, not in the Gemara in Sanhedrin. Chazal accept, and there are different discussions here as to what it means, but Chazal accept basically that an eye for an eye does not mean literally. So ask me an obvious question. I didn't say that. Pardon? Why would you say that? So why does, why, doesn't it, why does it say an eye for an eye? Why doesn't it say, if you take out someone's eye, you have to pay the value of the eye? Right? It's an obvious question. Why do we say an eye for an eye is tashlumen? By the way, the fact that no one argues on this, right? The Rambam in his Akhtamala Perish Mishnayos uses this as an example, or in his Perish Mishnayos, uses this as an example to demonstrate that this must be Allah Chalamosh Misina. To have a Pasuk like that, and to have all of Chazal across 500 years of Tanaim and 300 years of Amoraim, and there's no argument, everybody accepts that this is not literal, the only question is why. 
says the Rambam, says to you, this must be Allah HaMosh Misinai. Whether he has a tradition that it's Allah HaMosh Misinai, or he learns it out that way is an interesting question. Right? But we remain with this question, right? Why, why, does, the, why does the Gemara say it that way? It's interesting that the Rambam, right? The Rambam passes this way. <clears throat> if you look in Hilchos Chobel Umazik, right? Which would be where, which Sefer? Nazikin, right? Okay. Chobel Umazik. So, Perak Aleph. Ha-chovel b'chayev Somebody does bodily injury to his friend. Chayev l'shalem lo, you have to pay. And there are five things that you owe. Like, what does that mean? You pay the money. Nezek, tsar, ripoi, shevet, boshed, right? You have to pay for the fact that he's embarrassed and it's loving to walk around with the night. You have to pay for the fact that he's now unemployed, he loses employment. You have to pay for the pain and suffering. He goes, right, there's five different things. Sigma and Baba Kama, right? Okay? Um, Nezek, ketzad. How does this work? If, God forbid, a person, you know, injures his fellow, and the fellow has his, let's say, his arm or his leg amputated, right? You have to look at this person who's now an amputee as though he's a servant. Somebody who would be sold, like an evidivery sold in the shuk. How much more? Would his services be worth? How much would he be able to sell himself for with an arm? And how much would he sell himself without an arm? And the difference is what you owe. It's a very empirical system. You have to pay the difference. Right? So, so that's an interesting question. So the Raman passes this la'alacha. That in fact this is what you have to do. Right? Okay. So why don't we just say this in the Pasuk? Right? Why is there no full compensation? So there are actually two ways to look at this. There are two different possibilities that Chazal share with us, right? Um, to understand sort of what the purpose is of doing this Bateshlumin, and yet having a Pasuk which actually says an eye for an eye. The first one is actually based on the Rambam. What does the Rambam say? It's very interesting. First of all, what do you think? Why would the Pasuk tell me an eye for an eye if it's telling me I have to pay for an eye, right? What, what would you say? Do you understand the question, right? Why is the person saying an eye for an eye if it's really telling me I'm supposed to pay the value of an eye? Yeah? So, uh, to understand the severity of the effect you had. So that it's, it's really, you should be using an eye. Oh, can you really pay for a person's eye? Listen to the Lashon of the Rambam. That's the first, Right? By the way, this is one of the rare moments where the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah of Halacha has a moment of Ashkafa. He wants you to understand philosophically what's behind this, which is an interesting question. Why is this in a Sefer Halacha? Because Halacha is not meant to be divorced from understanding why we do what we do. That's why the Rambam starts his entire Mishnah Torah with Torah, which is all about our relationship with Hashem, Judaism, why we do what we do. Listen what the Rambam says. He deserves to lose an eye. The Rambam implies that the reason it says an eye for an eye is because even though you've paid for the eye, you haven't really paid for the eye. You know, this was, uh, this was really the question that almost brought the government down. The entire state was consumed by this question in the 1950s. 
In the 1950s, when the War of Independence ended and the dust had settled, Israel had to begin the work of building a state. You know, there were 650,000, some say as many as 850,000 refugees that were coming from all the Arab lands, right? The, the Arabs were so frustrated with the results of the War of Independence, um, they took it out on the Jewish populations. And after the Holocaust, people thought in a way that we don't think of today. They suddenly realized there are 120,000 Jews in Iraq and they could butcher them all. And they, the Iranians could butcher the Jews in Iran and the Yemenites could butcher the Jews in... So that they, they, they took out their rage on the Jewish communities. And so by hook and crook, Operation Magic Carpet, which ran basically from 1950-51 until 1953, 850,000 Jews, secret uh, flights, treks through the deserts, bribery, some through Europe and back, came to Israel. Now, there were 600,000 plus Jews in this country in 1948. By 1955, there were 1.4 million. They had more than doubled their population. That'd be the equivalent of 350 million people coming to America in the next three years. The economy would crash. Where do you put them? How do you house them? This is not a wealthy country. We just fought a war for a year and a half. So they set up tent camps all over the country. And now you have you know, hundreds of thousands, I mean, something like 60% unemployment. How do you deal with this? So Israel was def- desperate for funds. They were about to go bankrupt before even barely starting. Who came to rescue the state of Israel economically? Germany. Germany offered reparations. Germany wanted to rejoin the family of nations. And Germany did this, I don't think Germany did this out of the goodness of their hearts. I think they needed to make things right to ever sit around the table and look at their compatriots again. And thus began a huge battle. Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, his opinion was, we have bigger fish to fry. We have to build a state. We're still surrounded by Arab enemies. We have to support the army. If this is where we're going to get our money, this is where we're going to get our money. It doesn't mean we forgive them. It means that they owe us. Menachem Begin, who was the head of the, of the opposition, was furious. And he said, not one penny. We can't take a penny from the Germans. They don't deserve being told that anything that they did is okay. And this battle went on. And it almost brought the government down. Ben-Gurion in the end won. And so, you know, Israel took reparations and still does. Holocaust survivors accept reparations from, not all of them, uh, from the German government. And this saved the state of Israel. Right? So, should we do that? Should we, right? Should we allow Germany to think that they fixed it? Can you ever fix that? Is there any amount of money that you could ever do to fix this? Now, this is an important idea on a personal level. You know, sometimes you make mistakes and you want to know how to fix it. Can you ever really fix certain things? You know, you embarrass a person in public. Can you ever really, you can pay money for the embarrassment you're causing. Can you ever make it right? So that's the first reason that the Pasuk says, Ayin tachatayin. No, before you think about doing this, that you will never really make this right, as long as this person lives. The second idea is, is, is fascinating, right? There is a, this is a great story, right? There's a technical problem um, in, in the concept of, of Nezikin, okay? 
This is, a, I guess, a somewhat humorous story. It's in Baba Kama Daf Lamed Zayin. The Gemara says like this, okay? The Chanan Bisha. There was a fellow named Chanan Bisha. Taka Leilehu Gavra. And he hits some fellow, right? He punches him in the face. I don't know. He bruises him. They bring him for Avuna. Avuna is the Avbezdin. Okay? Amarlei, zil havlei pal gadezuzah. You have to pay a knas for the damage you did to him. You have to pay him half a zuz. It's a certain amount of money. Right? Havlei zuzah maka. Now he has a zuz, which is like a damaged zuz. The, the, the picture, the, the visage of the emperor, whoever's on the zuz, was damaged. Which meant, for whatever the reasons, that you can't split it in half. Right? Okay? When, when they had a zuz, when they had like a piece of silver, so it, it isn't like today that we have a dollar bill and the dollar is basically a check that says the government in good stead, based on this certificate, will put up a dollar. Right? The, the dollar itself, that piece of paper is not worth a dollar. It represents the fact that the government is committing to paying a dollar to whoever this gets this, right? But in those days, it was actually a piece of silver. It was worth a certain amount. So if I owe you half a zuz, you know, I chopped the piece of silver in half. But you couldn't chop the piece of silver in half. Zuzamaka says Rashi, Pchuta Tsurasa. It was like a little worn down, you couldn't do half a zuz, right? So what does this guy do, right? Um, so you can't pay half, right? Couldn't be weighed for half a zuz. He hits him again, and he pays him a zuz. Right? He says, okay, I can't pay you half a zuz. I got to get out of here. Okay, bam! He pops him one. Now I owe you a whole zuz. Here you go. Now think about what this corner is saying. This is a problem. Okay? So, So if I damage your eye, we have to figure out the monetary value. Let's say I'm Donald Trump. And I have lots of money. And I'm the kind of guy who could just pop you one. Right? And I know that I'm going to go to court. And they're going to charge me $100,000. But I don't care. $100,000 for me is like, you know, it's like a piece of seaweed. So I go over to you and I pop you one and I pay 50 bucks. And then I pop you again and I pay another 50 bucks. This is dangerous. So listen to this. This is unbelievable. This is a Tosos in Sanhedrin and Dafnun Chetamudet. This is what Tosos says. Okay? Rav Huna Amar, okay? There's a particular story here of a fellow who was going around, right? And he was hitting people, right? May Adam Echad Shaya Rashi says, Ragil Akosas Chavera. There was a guy who used to constantly hit people, right? Vikanso Bakach, and, and he would find him, and it wasn't working. So what does Ravuna say? Amar Tikatse Tziado. Cut off his hand. Now, is this literal or allegorical, right? A hand that picks itself up. In other words, an arrogant hand. You're not teaching this hand not to hit. It should be broken. And he broke his hand. How is it that he broke his hand? He cut off his hand. It's an interesting question. Right? Listen to what Tosa says. Right? This is Allah. Shiny hacha demuad viragil bakach hayala kotbe grove the dinu bakach vachin yad lama ragil bakach. If it's firecrackers, don't worry. If 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 you see, says Tosos, Bezdin preserves for itself 
the possibility that a fine doesn't work. In other words, says Tosos, the reason, if we extrapolate from this Tosos, the reason the Pasuk says ayin ayin is because at the end of the day, if a Bezdin sees that the monetary payment isn't working, it reserves the right for itself to actually take out a person's eye, to actually break a person's hand. And the fact that a person knows that a Bezdin can do that serves as a deterrent. So there are two reasons now. One is, Ayn Bain teaches me, you should know. It should prevent me from doing this because you should know you can really never pay him back. And the other is, this should serve as a deterrent. Now let's think about this for a minute. There are statistical studies to show that there is a lot less theft in Saudi Arabia. You know why? Because if you get caught stealing in Saudi Arabia, they cut your hand off. And it's not worth it. Right? If you live in, um, you know, in New Hampshire and you get caught stealing, so there's a whole legal team that'll help you, you know, by the time you're done, you'll have a hotel room. So there's not a lot of deterrent, right? So the other possibility is that this pasuk is designed to make sure that there is a deterrent here, right? Okay? So the question then becomes, what do we learn from this? What are the deterrents that we have today to negative behavior? And can you actually create deterrents for yourself? This is interesting. So there's a book that I've quoted to you before called Atomic Habits, and he has an interesting point in there at some point. It talks about the idea that you can create sort of realities that enforce habits. So for example, let's say you decide that you, know, you have an issue speaking Lajanara. Right? You could create a habit that every time you speak Lashon Hara, you have to treat your whole shear to burgers. And you don't want to treat your whole shear to burgers, so that prevents you from speaking Lashon Hara. Right? Let's say you decide that, you know, I mean, you think about it. What did the yeshiva do? I'm a big believer. I remember once years ago having a discussion with Rabbi Aaron and um, made the point, you know, when you're dealing with areas of discipline, especially for a tzibur such as this, you're not... You know, you're not 35 and married with children, but you're not 16-year-olds anymore. You're, you're in the process. Some of you are already adults. Some of you have some work to get there, but whatever, that's fine, right? So how do you deal with that, right? So one of the things that he once said, which really stuck with me, is, you know, you've got to keep it simple. You know, my definition of a high school discussion is like you get complicated. Like you told me I can't wear, I could wear a shirt with a collar, but this is a collar, but it almost has a collar, but whatever. That's like a high school discussion. Simplest way to do it. Keep it simple. Guy doesn't get up for a minion. You want him to get the message that it's something he needs to learn, but you don't want to get into annoying discussions of where were you and all the stuff like that. So you just say, come to a 215 shear. But if that doesn't eventually allow you to create your own deterrence, then what was the point? Because there's no 215 shear next year. So now you get to Kaitzman. Kaitzman, you stop the 215 shear. Because it has to be on you. So if you know that you have difficulty getting up, how do you create a deterrent for yourself? What is something that would motivate you? You know, let's say you say to yourself, I'm, I'm, you know, I get to the summer, and Shana Aleph is over. Eventually you have to finish Shana Aleph. And now you're back in Chvesnish, you know. And uh, you want to be sure you learn. But it's hard. You know, your friends are out having a good time. Uh, maybe everybody's going to the movies. Maybe, you know, nobody's telling you you have to get up. It's two weeks before camp starts or wherever you're going for the summer. 
So like, what motivates you to get out of bed? So there's two ways to motivate yourself. You can motivate yourself with a positive motivation, you know, your favorite coffee, your Dunkin' Donut, whatever it is, and it's waiting for you in show after minion, and if you learn there, so you kind of create for yourself a positive, a carrot. But sometimes it's healthy to also try to create for yourself a stick, you know? I don't particularly like running, but if I miss Minion, I'm going to go for a run. And I'll go for a run. Okay, so I'll make Minion, etc., etc. And all of this is hidden in this story, right? Revenge, and I'll just finish with this thought. It's simply incredible to me that the Jewish people, after 2,000 years, has not become a vengeful nation. It's not what we're known for. Even the Israeli army is called the Israel Defense Forces. You know, Hamas is shooting missiles. They're mamas, they're lobbing over explosive devices through the air to land indiscriminately among civilians. And Israel is trying to measure its response so that it will send a message on the one hand without, you know, sort of exacerbating or complicating the situation or intensifying the situation to lead to a broader conflict. What's not on the mind of Israeli commanders and politicians is we're going to get them back, which is incredible. There is something to learn from this. And I believe that that comes from the Torah. The Torah says you have to make it right, but it's not about getting him back. And if we can inculcate this, well, then that's a powerful idea. Something to think about on Parshat Emor.